Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show. So the Backstaff Show was born out of my sort of personal journey where I started a company and I there was a, a almost a veil over this world of angels and investment, what they care about, what they talk about, what they're looking for, and how I could take my idea and my concepts and turn it into a reality. And I needed funding, I needed support, I needed tech support and so much to do that. So I started this, the show was born out of the trying to create a way to articulate to people that actually it's not as complicated as you think. This is what you should be doing. This is how we make these things successful. And then talk to successful founders and entrepreneurs and investors about what they've done, the lessons they've learned, which have helped them to be successful, okay, and how they've done it. Um, and that's really why we were born. And our core, my core belief is that if you have a passion for something, you should back yourself, you should control your own destiny and pursue that. That's my belief, first and foremost. And the reason I invited you on the show is because I love your story and I'm not going to tell it. I want you to, to talk to everyone about it, but you also work exactly in that early stage world that me and my audience are completely fascinated about. So we'll come to that later, but first of all, look, imagine we're on a first date, you're introducing yourself to me, tell me what you do, where you come from, what you're all about. I'm Matthew Stafford. I do two th main things right now. Uh, one is I started a network called Nine Others in 2011, um, which we can get into. It's now a global network of thousands of entrepreneurs. Um, that started as a side project, still kind of is a side project. Um, I had a dinner last night. It was fantastic. First one of 2020. With all thousand of them. With <laughs> no, with only 10 people. So it's yourself and nine others come to dinner. And we'll come, yeah, I want to hear all about that. But let, let's talk about it later. I want to okay. hear about it. Um, and then the other thing I do, which is the main the main thing, is um, angel investing. I started a company called Dot Matrix Group in 2016 with a friend of mine. And um, we are now an angel syndicate of nearly 70 members. We've done nine investments, just finished off number nine. Uh, we're looking at number 10 tonight. Um, and it's it's going pretty well. Um, I mean, I love this world. I've worked with startups since 2010 for the last 10 years. Um, so talk to me about that. So, so you, know, you, don't, you don't just fall into starting your own syndicate. Like you don't leave uni and be like, hey, I'm going to start my own syndicate. Yeah. So are you from that world? Like, What did you what did you start out as? Did you graduate in 2010, are you saying? Or? Uh, no. So I've done everything a bit back to front, really. Okay. So um, I grew up in the Northeast in Northumberland. I went to school there. Um, I got shitty A-levels. You don't have anywhere near the broadness of accent I'd expect from a man from North Why, yeah, man, I can turn it on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Please do. <laughs> there was a guy at the dinner last night called Jordi. And, you know, he was from Spain, right? Jordi. <laughs> and I was like, hey, Jordi, how's it going? <laughs> and I, like, I am too. <laughs> I am too. We're busy mates. I yeah, love that. Exactly. So you're from the north. So I grew up in Northumberland on a farm in the middle of nowhere. My my. Are you a farm guy? My family um, have farmed for generations. Arable, livestock. Um, a mix. So we grew uh, wheat and barley and um, beef cattle and lamb. Amazing. Mainly. Um, so I grew up on one farm that my cousin now farms. And then uh, we bought another one when I was nine and lived on that from nine to 16. Wow. Um, farming in the 80s was fantastic. In the um, in the fight game, you, we always say, you know, like, you know, you can fight strong, you can fight crazy, never fight someone who's a farmer. <laughs> Hard as nails. They are. They're the strongest people <laughs> on the planet. They all just, they just pick up hay bales all day. In the US, they yeah. call it farm strength. It's terrifying. So just afterwards, after the show, you and I have a quick wrestle. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then well, we'll I was never, I, there was never any oh. danger of me being a farmer. Oh, right. So okay. I'll right. probably lose. 
I've still got some of those farming jeans there. I'll, we'll give, you, I'll we'll give you a we'll good... We'll see what happens. We'll I'm looking at your hands, checking you out already. Yeah, so, exactly. okay, fine. So you were a farmer, you you left there and you're like, you didn't do particularly well at school, which because you're probably... Uh, well, I didn't really pay attention to exams yeah, at school. You're obviously a smart guy. So, so, must be, yeah. um, so you know, I was having too much fun and, and, and didn't really sort of, sort of breeze through... GCSEs did all right. Tried the same strategy to breeze through A levels. Doesn't work. Didn't, didn't really get no. good results. So, um, so left home and sort of bobbed around for a year. And then uh, my first sort of proper job was on the management training scheme at John Lewis in Windsor, which uh, was quite a good grounding. I was there for a couple of years, and then I left to start a t-shirt company with someone from John Lewis. What? Um, what was it called? It was called Filetto which is, was to embroider uh, in, or, or to thread a needle rather in Italian. I love that. I love that. You, I love this Italian thing. So you wait, that's not, I love, I love an origin story, which begins with starting a company. Everyone um, should start a t-shirt company. It was so, I, every, was, I was Everybody 20. should start a t-shirt company. That's the takeaway guys. Um, everyone should start a t-shirt company. So you, okay. So let's, let's, let's break this down. Like in okay. hindsight. So what was the problem you were solving? Um, why would, why do people want your t-shirts? So my, um, my theory while I was working at John Lewis with my mate who was also working at John Lewis was that let's get an embroidery machine and let's embroider people's logos onto t-shirts and sell them. You know, one day we'll have our own Your, brand. So other people's um, logos. But it was other people's, other people's logos. Oh, so right? you, you were, you were like a, so like, look, I'm my company Stakester. We make the coolest t-shirts in the world for our company. Yeah. So if people like me will come to you and be like, Hey, Filetto, um, can you stitch me up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We didn't quite stitch anyone else. But I hope. Yeah. Uh, although I was, I was a bit stitched up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that was kind of our premise. Let's go start a t-shirt company. We'll embroider these things rather than print, you know, rather than printing and, uh, and try and flog them you know we'll maybe flog our own with our own brand but we'll, we can also do it for other people so we clubbed together we got an embroidery machine uh we left what John. kind of money does that cost like, i don't know oh back this. this is a long time ago this is yeah. this is well, like, what 90s. is it how, so how much an embroidery machine cost oh, i think it's about 650 quid it's a lot of money if you just have like you just out of school no, I've done, I've done nearly two years at John Lewis. Okay, but okay, right. So it's not the end of us. So it's a little bit that, so that you didn't need to go and raise capital. But you no. don't, and is this like in your mate's bedroom? Is this, did you get a garage or something? Um, so we had, um, so I left, so we, so we resigned and we left, we left John Lewis and. I love how ballsy this is. Oh God. Um, I learned, a lot, training, of, I learned a lot of lessons. Management training scheme next, at John Lewis. Yeah. That's an aspirational job. And you're it like, great. and you're like, I'm kicking this out. I'm, I'm starting my yeah. t-shirt company. I oh, love my this. parents thought I was nuts and were really I think worried. you're nuts. Um, but I did it anyway. So jacked it in, uh, knowing nothing. And, um, so I bought this embroidery machine. A friend of mine, um, is a photocopier dealer. He had a, he had a warehouse in North London, uh, near, um, Staples Corner he, I went to see him. He, he introduced me to the person that ran the, ran the business park. I got a, um, a basement room with no windows and no heating. Um, it had a couple of strip lights and, uh, electric power and set what up was it, in there. What was it used for before? <laughs> well, next door to us was the Verve, the band, the Verve, and they used to practice in there. So sometimes oh, I'd amazing. come in, I'd come in early in the morning and they were like sleeping in the hallway. And you're just like, you're making t-shirts, a bit of Sweet Symphony. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So a Sweet Symphony, bit of Sweet Symphony's going on next door <laughs> and I'm embroidering t-shirts. Amazing. <laughs> um, my mate from John Lewis lasted about two weeks on that and then no. decided to ditch it. Oh, so you were stitched up? Uh, a bit. So, th- was, so, then, so then it's just you? So then it was just me for the next year or so. 
And I had, I mean, the reason he got cold feet, um, which people do in business, you know, we had no money, we had no customers, we had no idea what we're doing. And we're sitting in a windowless, heatingless uh, basement in you know what, London it's, it's, somewhere. It's, you know what's so funny? Like that story, those, that phrase of no money, no customers, yeah. probably no idea what you're really doing yeah. and being in a cold basement. Like yeah. there are hundreds of people listening to this right now who are a bit like, that's me. <laughs> that's that's how startups happen. Yeah. It's, um, it's not uncommon and it hasn't changed. So you were there on your own. So he quit and because it was really scary. And it is scary. But we hadn't, my my thinking at the time was, I mean, I was, I was obviously a bit pissed off. Um, but, you know, people have to be responsible for their own decisions. And I can't force someone to do what they don't want to do, even though we'd kind of planned this for the previous uh, year. Um, so, okay, fine. So... So that that happened, and then it was all just me. And I'm like, well, I've got to give it a go. We come this far. I've right? got to have a got to have a crack at yeah, it. Yeah, and I look, I mean, crazy that guy. Like, it is it's frightening. Like some people, like let's not be unfair to them. Like, yeah, rent's got to be paid, and mm. not everyone has the ability to not get paid. And so, you know, you got someone knocking on your door, and they're like, look, you know, if you're living in London, like yeah. I don't know, cheap rents like seven fifty a month or something, and they're like, you know, it's it's punchy, right? So yeah, I get it. Like, so what I did, um. I I got I got hold of um, about ten yellow pages of North London. This is before the bloody internet and everything. Right? This is how old I am. So I got a stack of yellow pages, and I wrote uh, twenty letters. No, twenty was a hundred. I think it was a hundred. Yeah, I I wrote a hundred letters a day to businesses. A hundred letters a day. Yeah. Well, my mate had a, my mate sells photocopiers, so I photocopied a lot of them, but I still had to. Type, I got a typewriter. Change names, yeah. You weren't mail merging. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's no mail merge uh, until later when I got a computer. Um, so I was typing out envelopes and all this sort of stuff. And I was just, you know, the, the yellow pages is, as for those as old as me, know that it's categorized into types of businesses. Right. Um, so there's, I don't know, food and beverage businesses, there's um, coffee shops, all this kind of stuff. And then they're alphabetical within that. So I just picked, um, that was why it was 20. So I picked five categories each day and wrote to 20 in each category i love this no wait after can yeah. i dig into that really quickly yeah, yeah, really yeah. really quickly because i'm fast as you know i'm fascinated with pitching uh-huh. what was your what was your pitch um, what did you say to well i tried cold calling in the beginning so i got all the phone numbers obviously in the phone yeah and that was in well. the day when you could cold call yeah and yeah, whereas um, now it's a bit like no i don't want to do ppi yeah yeah and that was really scary that's it is quite, it is frightening that's quite nerve-wracking to do yeah. that as um, and rejection is real you know, you never yeah. you never understand consistent rejection until you've done yeah. cold calling. Yeah, I think everyone should go through it. So, what was the pitch? What were you? Well, the pitch was, um, you know, oh God, I've, I've probably got a letter at home somewhere. I don't know. Um, okay, so what was but, you know? You you know, know I'm, I'm a new t-shirt company. Yeah, um, uh, we do embroidery. We can embroider your logo onto onto t-shirts, polo shirts, sweatshirts for your staff or for you to sell. And it depended on what business it was, but what what sort of got some traction is that the word now, uh, which I didn't know at the time was I, I was writing to these five different categories every day, and what got traction was pubs, was um, was bars, pubs, restaurants. So then I got my stack of yellow pages and only went to the pubs section and wrote to a hundred pubs a day, um, and that that started to get some sales. Unbeknownst because to you, because they're like. Yeah. Um, 
sure we'll have you know we'll have 20 for our staff with the you know the the lamb and flag pub or whatever it is and a couple of them were like yeah great we'll you know we'll try and sell them to customers um and that and so i was i was supplying a bunch of pubs in north london with their um with their apparel with their staff uniform it's what unbeknownst to you like this is a great story so like yeah i'm looking i've at not this. told this story before well, no, but i love it They're looking looking at this as a as someone who is obsessed with pitching and sales techniques, you basically started off there and you've gone like, you've new is the one thing that never goes out of fashion. Like, so I love that you've opened that. We're new. Everyone loves new. Mm. You've then been like, you're creating demand. There's no, you don't know that they've got a problem. You don't know they have. So you're creating that demand by mm. saying, you could do this for this and this and this, get that yeah. floating. And then you said like, here's how I deliver this solution. That's that's best practice. I love that. And then you've, you've figured out where your traction is and then you've, you've tried it out. So you put it out to everyone. You try yeah. all the channels and then you see what works and you hone down. I, I love and this. Then, and then they phoned me, you know, some of the, some of the letters that went out, they phoned me. I had a really good memorable phone number, um, uh, which I picked from whenever I got it installed. Yeah. And, um, it was, it was four, five, zero, 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 five, four. So it was kind of like, mate, that's, that's thousands of pounds worth of risk. So that was great. Now. And I yeah. just, and I just got, yeah. you know, just got that one. There's a list you can pick at the time. And Love I thought, that. Oh, that was a good one. Everything's people, brand. Might, people might remember it. Everything's brand buddy. That um, all counts. Good so work. from my letters, people started phoning me back and then I'd go and see them in, you know, the pub in Camden or wherever it was, um, you know, take a few samples you know i had one sweatshirt and one um polo shirt what with, was with loads of different type oh, fonts and embroidering nice. sort of examples yeah, 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 yeah. Of, of logos and all. i mean i just made it up and that's started, classic you know, that's that product classic product George demo pub london you what know, is your um what was better about what you were doing than everyone else or was it the fact that you just were getting in touch do you think um what was better oh, what were you doing better than know. other t-shirt companies i don't know I've got no idea. Interesting. So it might have been a timing thing. It might have been the fact that you were... Because there's something in that. Like, you, there is, there's so much about sales that people don't realise that it is about getting someone at the right time. Yeah. You know, so like, you know... I mean, there was, you know, there was still lots of rejection, like the cold calling. Oh, yeah. But like, so I'd go to some and they just wouldn't order. And, you know, I'd be back in my cold basement, uh, you know, utterly depressed. Yeah. And then the phone would ring and someone would say, yeah, can I have 50 T-shirts? And it was like, oh, bloody hell. It's such Those an interesting... highs and lows was just, was just crazy. It's so interesting. We'll come on to later when we talk about investment. But there is... It's so interesting. And no, anyone who's worked in sales or anything like that will understand what it feels like to have your emotions absolutely under the control of an external third party, which mm. you can't control. It's really like... I liken it to when you meet a girl and you go out on a date with them and you text them and they haven't responded <laughs> and you're like, uh Oh, and it, they, they've got control and you're depressed all the time. And then the message comes through and it says, actually Tom, I didn't like you. You've got awful hair, but like, it's like, it's one of those things where it's so you, it's such an emotional thing and people need to accept that. I always say to people like when they're getting into sales or starting a business, like get comfortable with rejection. Mm. It's part of your life at the beginning. And it might be forever. Like, just get comfortable with it. Accept that you are going to get rejected. Well, accept it. It's never, you know, it's never comfortable. No. But um, accept that it's going to happen, I guess. Yeah, and if you don't, so you're, 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 yeah. be optimistic, but don't just accept that it will happen. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to break. Yeah. So you did that. Like, tell me now, how does this story end? I want it to end <laughs> where Queen Elizabeth comes to you and says, I'm opening a pub. Can you <laughs> make me a t-shirt? Um, 
I have met Her Majesty, but she didn't buy a T-shirt. How uh, did you? Whoa, whoa, whoa! Let, side note: How did you meet her? Oh, uh, there was a there was like a tech entrepreneur's reception a few years ago at um, Buckingham Palace. There was loads of people. Me, oh, me and me and three hundred close uh, friends. Picture the palace. No. Oh, it's it different. Was, um, it was different. One. Um, um, but how that T-shirt? So I so so having had a business partner at the beginning, but then not a couple of weeks later, I thought, right, I'll give this a go. Um, I worked hard for 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 that year. Um, got some sales. Um, you know, managed to managed to survive. Um, and then we started in the winter. And then sort of after the next winter, it was you know it was all right. It was fine. I was surviving on it. But it was a case of man, I didn't know about raising money or anything like that. Yeah. And it was a case of either. You know, I got to do the, I got to slog away like this for another few years. You know, no one's buying my own brand stuff. I'm just doing it for clubs and pubs or whatever. Or I've got to take on debt, um, get a more sophisticated machine to be able to do better products. Um, and I didn't want to take on that debt. Um, I didn't want to slog away like that year for another few years. So I thought, right, I'll, I'll, jack it in i'll pull i'll stop it um i'll go get a job which will pay me a bit more money and then i'll try and figure out what to do so that's what i did so i left that and i got another retail management job for the next year okay so it's like but i i think that's it's it's really so you would we call that a success C, C plus um, nah. on the on the on the business Lo- front? loads of lessons i mean i think but I that's think the I, win isn't it right that's which, which was the which was the success I guess yeah, I, I learned a lot about myself I learned a lot about people um, and I think even like reflecting on it now for the first time in a long time there was some there was some great lessons there well, so fun- I have stuck with me fundamentally that principle of you know trying to find product market fit finding a way to mm. get traction like that's all businesses mm. and you were doing it at the very beginning so you come out of that you go into retail you work in there for a little while when do you start getting so you've done a startup you've gone to but then you didn't stay in retail uh, no so I I, I yeah, I went and got another retail job for a year and um, you know, wondering what to do. And I, you know, I had no, I had crappy A-levels, no degree, um, bit of experience. You know, I just didn't know what, what to do. So I regrouped that year. Um, and then a mate of mine uh, had a job in like the RBS post room, who the guy I'd gone to school with. And, um, he was graduate. He had, a, he had a degree, but he was kind of doing this job while he was figuring out what to do. You know, we're still like 21 or something, 22. And, um, somebody from the IT department wondered what these couple of graduates were doing in the, in the post room. Um, so they had a chat, they got to know each other. And then my mate, uh, ended up, actually it was a different company, but my mate ended up in RBS, RBS's um, it, uh, it function in, um, the angel in that, in the building that rocket space is in. That's yeah, yeah, this, this, it's still that, yeah, it's just, just in, literally yeah, above the station. Yeah. Um, and what was going on, this is 1999. They were hiring like anybody and everybody for the Y2K bug, right? Ah, yeah. The, the massive calamity that it wasn't. <laughs> Because people like me fixed it. Yeah, I see. Uh, no, I mean, so so they were, you know, they were obviously worried about that. This bit of this division of RBS was was shipping software that fund managers used, and it and thinking about it now, you know, this this little bit of RBS was a bit like a sort of a corporate startup within a, you know, a startup within a corporate, a, a techie guy at RBS. Um, who was a database, a DBA database administrator, said to RBS, look, I think I can build a system that will handle this manual process better. So he did that. And that was in like the 80s or whatever. And then they, 
you know, that that handled RB, a bit of RBS's fund management. So that's great. And then they thought, hang on a minute, we can sell this to other clients. So by the time my mate was there, they were shipping this software to you know, um, dozens of massive fund managers worried about Y2K bug, trying to fix all those um, uh, problems there. So they were hiring loads of people. So my mate got me an interview with his boss um, and I managed to, even though I didn't know, hardly knew the front of a computer from the back of one, that I could work hard and I would learn fast and um, be able to help out in RBS. And um, the team I joined was part of the software shipping uh, team, so we sort of interface with all the different internal teams and ship this software to the client, um, and I absolutely loved it. Yeah, it was uh, going from going from that retail job to working for RBS on an hourly rate on a, as a contractor. My salary went up five times. Bet, yeah, um, and I so I worked on that contract for six months and earned more money than I knew what to do with. Uh, horrible a, situation a, to be in yeah it was tough as a as a 22 year old or something yeah um and i ended up staying i you know i i, I went permanent after six months because i thought shit i'm gonna get found out that i've got you know no qualifications don't know what i'm doing and all that sort of stuff so they offered me a permanent job which was which was um you know less than the contract but still an awful yeah know, and good, i think money. A, lot, a lot of people so i took that yeah it's it's, 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 it's it's funny you say that actually i think a lot of people who don't have the best academic backgrounds feel like imposters, weirdly, you know, when it's such a, a ridiculous thing to feel. Like if you're mm. doing the job well, it doesn't matter where you were before. Like if you're doing that job well, you deserve to be there. Well, a, I mean, we'll come on to it because my I, I ended up going to university a couple of times so um, later on, and it's it was a pure it was a confidence thing. Um, it's it's so interesting. Like a lot of people who don't have, and I have some really close friends who don't have degrees, and I just think to them, and they have a a weird sort of chip on their shoulder because everyone else does, and they're mm. like, well, maybe I need to get one, and I think. And I, I get it. Like if it's, if you need to do that to give yourself yeah. the confidence, do oh, it. I wish I didn't feel like that, but I did. So I did something about it. And now that part is, it's is, ticked is off. I, I get it. And I That's see, I say it's people all the time. Like it's, uh, it's you people say, oh no, you don't need to go and get a degree. But if you have that on your shoulder and it's making you uncomfortable, just do it. And it was enjoyable. Right. So I said, I ended up, I mean, yeah, with, you know, I, mean, just, I ended up staying with fun. RBS for, uh, for, for, for the rest of that year. That little bit of RBS was taken over by the bank of New York. Um, we had an office in Edinburgh, which serviced the Scottish clients. In Gogoburn or? Uh, huh? In Gogoburn. What? <laughs> Head office for RBS is in Gogoburn. Oh, right. No, no, no. No, no, right. no this is Bank of New York by now. It was, oh, right. a, it was a little office in town. Oh, so my bit of RBS was taken over by the Bank of New York. Oh, okay. Um, so I ended up working with them, moved to the Edinburgh office, uh, worked there for three years, you know, progressed well. I was in the consulting department which is a small team of consultants that faced off to the clients Lovely. and sort of went back to the techies back in london so i was kind of doing that back and forth between the client and the tech um and really really enjoyed it and then got to um you know got to like that job and all of the better consultants had technical backgrounds and i thought well maybe now is the time for me to educate myself a bit so i started applying to uh, universities and um, in 2003, got a place at Durham in the Northeast to study computer science. Amazing school. As a, uh, as a undergrad, with all, as a 27-year-old, um, with all the 18-year-old undergrads. Which was horrible. Um, it was hard work. It's <laughs> I'll tell you that. exhausting. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I went, so I, and I always kind of knew, you know, when I was 18, 19, that I could go to uni later. Hmm. Um, I never thought with my crappy A-levels I'd get into somewhere like Durham, but. 
Yeah, don't ever let anyone ever tell you it's not the right time for something. Mm. Like, doesn't well, it, you can. You're never ready, and you can never afford it, and you and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, it's, it's, it's right yeah, it's bollocks. Like anyone it who was, says like you're fine. too old for this or too young for that, fuck you. Yeah. So you know, I applied to a bunch and got re- rejected from some apparently not as good unis, but somehow talked my way into Durham. And there was a guy who, I suppose, took a chance on me, a bit like the guy in RBS who took a chance on me. And um, so I so I gave up my bank in York job. Uh, went to Durham full time and um, worked my brain out like never before. Cause yeah. it was, it was, you know, it was nine years since I'd been at school. It was 11 years since I'd studied mathematics, it's tough skill, computer science is yeah, half a geez. maths degree. Holy yeah. crap. It was hard, Fuck. but I, in, but I worked really, really hard. I treated it like a job. I went in early. I left late, um, different experience to the 18 year olds, but still, still, you know, enjoyed myself um, and did really well. Got a good degree, won a few prizes and that confidence thing was like, okay, I have got a brain and it yes. works. Um, and yeah. that was just fantastic. That, yeah. that was, a that was you know, again, a really, really great foundation I really for the res- next phase. I really respect that. In the current climate, marketing is hard. But do you know what isn't hard? Making sure you never miss an episode of your favorite podcast. So tap the follow button on your podcast and you'll never miss out on the latest episodes of Unicorny or Marketing Difference. You can even go back and listen to our back catalogue of amazing episodes. If you do that, please leave us a review. It would mean so much. So look, so we... I'd, by the way, you have a great origin story. This <laughs> farmer to t-shirt maker to contractor consultant to goes back to uni. Like it's, I love this. And I think it really, what resonates for me, and I hope that people listening really get into this is like, don't let anyone tell you the order you have to do something, you know, or mm. like you do it your way. Like, and you did that and you proved that. And I, and I love that, um, I love that. I don't everyone let it tell you like it's too late or it's too early. Fuck them. Like I love that, and you're really a great embodiment of that. I Let's, didn't really know that at the time, though. No, no you one. Know, does. I suppose, no I one suppose does. You know, now looking back, could, should I have? You know, you can't. You can't run the. You can't run your life. You can't run parallel tests on your life. So you do have to just make the decisions and crack yeah. on. And sometimes it might not work out, know, but like yeah, yeah, try, absolutely, right? it might not work out. But you kind of got to like my. You know, when my t-shirt co-founder left. Um, it was like, well, I've got to crack on, you know, I've, there wasn't any option of me giving up. Yeah. That just didn't, my gut, just my sense, just, I couldn't have lived with myself if I had jacked it in then as well. Yeah. But so I did that for a year or so, gave it a good go and then thought, right, let's, you know, let's, let's pause and think on. Yeah. The, uh, amateur, the, next the amateur psychologist in me will say that's because of your farm background, because the one, the thing that you learn in that world and I have a little bit of contact with it is that if you don't go out and work, yeah, right. Mm shit dies <laughs> okay there's no option yeah doesn't matter if you feel ill or it's cold or whatever yep. you have to just graft and get on with it yeah and that's well i suppose yeah i mean i'd had that yeah i've had that you know my 24 7 my whole life up yeah. to that point my I, father would um you know had to go and look the stock and feed them in the winter and all, make sure that all the sheep are still there seven yeah. days a week you just, um, there's no rest there's they're no the hardest workers in the world if you i mean we used to have one week's holiday each year and yeah, he'd have to get someone else in to, to do that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we, so we, we had lambs and lambing time was particularly hard work um, because you, like you say, if you don't look after them, they die and that's hundreds of pounds, you know, lying yeah. dead. So my father used to have to you know, get up at, I don't know, five o'clock in the morning, go check out the lambs and the sheep and all that sort of stuff, do a day's work doing that. 
um, and then he'd come in, have some have some dinner, go back out again. He'd come back in at maybe nine ten o'clock at night, get maybe two three hours sleep, go look at the go go look, check on them again um, at two three o'clock in the morning, come back get another couple of hours sleep, and then up again at five. And you do that for you know about a month, seven days a week during the lambing time. Um, Fuck. Yeah, it's really hard work, and I suppose and it's, you're and right. it's not and it's not, it's not singer desk work. That is on it the whole time. Yeah, fuck. They're, 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 That's why they're hard as nails. <laughs> the farmers are a different breed. I have so much respect for them. I want to get one on the show. Yeah, love to speak to a farmer. Um, so I can help with that, maybe. <laughs> yeah, let's get them on. Okay, so let's fast forward a little bit. Now let's talk about you decided to get into the world of connecting founders and entrepreneurs like yep. what what event happened which made you think fuck i've got to start connecting these people when i was at university i'd seen you know twitter launch facebook launch uh, google launch gmail all these wow. kind of new new tech inspiring stuff right amazing stuff yeah. and i'd been you know i'd been programming and websites and all that sort of stuff so okay. it was really really good uh, i came back down to london after that got a job with um, a couple of software companies, wanted to work for smaller and smaller companies because I thought I had this appetite to work hard. And, you know, having that Durham experience um, gave me a confidence boost that I knew what I was doing technically and I, and I had this real appetite to work really, really hard. But it just wasn't as satisfying as it was before. So I changed a couple of companies and a friend of mine had done an MBA um at business school so i thought right i'll go do one of those you know i can get in there now i've got first degree i'll go do i'll go do go to business school that'll teach me the business side of things and it had given my friend's career a real boost so maybe that'll do the same for me um so i did that for a couple of years part-time whilst working at a where software you, company uh, imperial college okay yeah. and again just loved that i mean it was completely different to undergraduate undergraduate i had there were, there were about 35 uh all blokes you know, no girls in my class, computer scientists that didn't really talk to each other. MBA class um, is a massive mix of um, engineers and doctors and accountants and marketing people and all that kind of stuff. Wonderful. Um, the subject matter is not rocket science, um, but there's just a massive quantity of it. And it was at business school that I started learning about venture capital. So I'd seen these small tech companies happen and like business school is, okay, this is how they get funded. And the people behind that funding um, there's all almost can be infinite upside, uh, lots of failures, lots of learning, but tiny teams can have a massive impact. Um, so at the end of my MBA, I got a job in 2010 with a very small early stage investor. And that okay. was where my kind of uh, entry into the startup world started. So straight in. So when you now... I am... The thing I've... I learned from the show and from my own experience is that there is a absolutely colossal disparity between or chasm rather between a good VC and a bad one. Mm. <laughs> yeah, there is. There's like the success rates and the help and support. There's such a huge chasm between them. Um, yeah, there's a small, there's a small number of investors that do really, 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 exactly. really well. And so, you, so when you, so I guess when you were at this VC, you obviously, um, cause I know what you do now. You obviously thought you could do it better, yeah. Um, so, what was it that you learned there that you thought this is this this is not the secret sauce, but this is where I think that I can do a good job? Well, it wasn't a VC; they didn't have a fund. So there were there were four partners. There was me, and there was another member of staff. 
at the beginning. So it was a very small team. So you do deal flow. And these these four partners had made a bit of money. They did bits of investing, bits of non-exec work, had some clients, did that sort of stuff for it. That was kind of half the business. The other half of the business, which was what I was brought in to, um, to, to lead on, was a wonderful program back in 2010, 2011 called Gateway to Investment. And it was a bit like Tech City before Tech City in that we organized events, we organized mentoring, we did pitch days, um, all with the, and it was government back to the government paid my company and a couple of other companies to run this program. And it was all with the aim of helping um, the early stage techie startups in East London uh, get investment. So it was an investment readiness kind of program what, okay so like, let's let's turn that because that's bread and butter for this show right what are the give me three things that makes a company ready for investment somebody's listening to this right now and they want to get ready what are the three things they absolutely need oh man um and the reason i say three yep is there's always a top three anyone says top four you start to dilute there's always three things I mean, when I'm looking at investments now, it's just people say it's all about team, team, team. And it is. I want, I need to get to know how that team's going to execute and if they can execute. So, it's, uh, you know, I, I don't know if that's the right answer. Well, I can't, that I can't prepare for you to understand that. So, how do I, so rather, how would I, cards on the table, if I'm there right now and I'm, getting ready for investment for someone like you or other people, mm. how do I prove to the world? It's a really good question, actually. How do I prove to the world that I'm able to execute if I haven't before? Because there's a real chicken. Well, you can't egg. prove. You have to You have to do it over time. So that's an interesting and, question. And different yeah. people at different stages will take a punt on that. So that's the question for you there. So if I'm, because I there, there's, this, there's this challenge with the chicken and egg situation in the startup world. And, you know, um, some people are worse than others, but they're like, you want to see a founder with a track record of success. And it's like, well, that's tough. Not necessarily. Not necessarily, right? Exactly right. So how can you alleviate that problem? And how can you, how could, if you were talking to a founder right now, how could they convince you as an investor that they are the right person to be executing on that vision? Um, well, it takes time for me to understand that. So I, um, our, our investment opportunities now, I need to observe them for, uh, quite some time. Okay. What kind okay. of things are you looking for? However, it comes it comes in stages. And like okay. I say, it's different for different people at different stages. So do you need loads of traction to get into some accelerators and then you get a bit of cash to have a go on your MVP? No, because some accelerator programs or early investors or your friends and your family will will back you when you've got nothing. Yeah. Um, but at every stage, you know, you're always going to be resource constrained as an entrepreneur. And what I don't want to see is um, if you give me this money, then I will be able to do that. Because that's true at every stage. You've always got to do what you can with what you've got right now. So whether you've got, you know, no money, 50 grand from an accelerator or a 5 million series A, you've still got challenges that you need to execute on with what you've got right now. Um, so it's different for each stage, but the, the, you know, the turnoff is, um, Someone who's got maybe, you know, no product, but they've got an idea and they say, I can only do this if, if I get half a million of investment with no product and no MVP because it's so technically challenging. I need half a million to go away and build it. I mean, that's just nonsense. 
you, you you'll you'll never get that. You'll never convince people. I really like that. We had um, a group of guys on here um, from Switch, Tom Rogers and Llewellyn Kinch. Really, really inspirational guys. They um, they have this thing where Llewellyn says, "Challenge as hard as you can what you truly need for an MVP." Because mm. they start out and they they do um, uh, they save people money on their bills. Amazing product, actually. But what they did was they started off and they were like, okay, look, it's going to cost us quite a lot of money to build this, mm-hmm. but can I deliver the outcome to someone without building it? Yeah. So that- the, the objective in those early days is to learn. There was a guy yeah. at the Nine Others dinner last night and he's selling a particular thing and he knocked up a web page and said, this is, you know, this is my product. This is what I'm doing, you know, and they had a buy now button. You hit the buy now button and it says, thank you, we're not shipping yet, but put your email address. And he, I mean, he's very, very early. And I think this is what Dropbox did. I think the story kind of comes from Dropbox where they had their landing page and you know, this is what we're going to do. Seamlessly synchronize files across devices. Uh, if you're interested, you know, click here. Uh, and they had nothing. And that costs, what, a couple of quid? I love to that. that together. Anthony Rose, who uh, came on the show and he's, um, he is the CEO matter of um, Seed Legals, yeah. yeah, and we used to, used to run iPlayer. And he does this great story where he says, like, first of all, never commit to building something till you know people want it. Yeah. So he's put fake buttons on iPlayer. He used to be like, click here. Yeah. And then people click on it. So it might be something like, uh, do you want um, this type of content? Do you mm-hmm. want us to filter by this or whatever? Mm-hmm. And if people click on it, enough times they say okay coming soon or whatever yeah. you know you people want it. it i've loved that this guy so- last night he said he, he built this landing page he you know sent it out to 100 people on on like facebook facebook ads like people he didn't know like complete random so not like his mates and and six people hit the buy now button great i love that i love that i don't want to be that guy but like on my uh for sakes that we had uh almost five thousand people sign up before we had anything which had a web page it's like love the concept and i'm like yeah that's traction yeah, but that's good. So, so that is a demonstration of that is that is a demonstration of someone's ability to think and to to execute. Yeah, I love and that. To try I mean, and, and to validate it. It's a really strong quote from me. There, it's like you know, it's a real turn off when someone says, "If you give me this, then I'll do that." Yep, it that's always be, the case. It should be like I'm doing this, and I yeah. can now do better. <laughs> yeah, what I want to see it's it's like it's a funny thing, right? So, what you want to see as an investor is. Um, but what you want to have as an entrepreneur is to be in a position of most power, right? And if you're an entrepreneur and you are absolutely nailing it and people are buying and people are downloading and people are, you know, you're building a product that people love, then every investor in town is going to want to get to know you. Yeah. But if you're, if you're going out there a bit needy saying, Oh, I need 50 grand and then I can build this website. Well, no one really wants that. Prove it. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, Eamon Carey says, um, don't take money. Just take enough to lock yourself in a room for a year so you can build a product that people want. Then the VCs will come knocking on your door. You know, I love that. I love that attitude. Okay, so now you've got this. I want to I want to say this because I'm, I'm also, I'm not part of it. I want to be part of it. Like you've got this founder community of yeah. loads of people. Like how did that come about? Well, I was working for this other, this other investor called Pembridge. And as part of this um, government program that we were doing to help entrepreneurs get investment, we ran a bunch of investor dinners. So it was kind of curated investors that we knew were ready, willing and able to invest. Um, It was startups that had either been through our program or they were ready for investment. Um, And we ran a dinner. I came up with this idea. Let's do let's do investor breakfasts, investor dinners. And our job was to make this stuff happen. We didn't get involved in the nitty gritty of any deals, but 
we ran the dinners and the entrepreneurs pitched for a couple of minutes and then there was a bit of Q&A and the whole point was um, uh, get to know those investors and then the next step might be go grab a coffee and all that sort of stuff. So a lot of that, it all led to coffees and follow-ups. A lot of it led to some deals. Um, those startups got their investment. We could tick that off to say, yes, we helped with that. Um, and that was great. We were so successful on that program, we hit all of our government targets four months early. High five. Which was great. Um, but what happens is with that kind of thing, what happened at the time was, um, okay, great. You've hit your you've hit your numbers. Stop. That's the end of that. So four months early, we stopped that program. They, they stopped that program because we'd hit the numbers. There was going to be possibly a replacement program in the March of the following year, four months later. But we didn't know whether we were going to be part of that. We were kind of bidding for that program at the time. So me and someone else um, uh, who were working on that project together, my now Nine Others co-founder, Katie, um, said, right, if we get that next contract, we're going to need, you know, all this goodwill we've built up with these this network of entrepreneurs that we got to know over the last year, you know, we're going to need those people and we want to help those people. And if we don't get that contract, we're probably going to need them even more. So that was kind of one thing. Another thing that happened at those investor dinners was in the last sort of 20, 30 minutes, all the entrepreneurs would huddle together in a corner and talk to each other. And it used to really annoy us because we'd got them there to talk to the investors. We were like, you are wasting time talking to each other and not talking to those investors. It used to, used to piss us off. Um, but what we realized after that had happened with different groups of people at different dinners, it was like, what are they doing? And actually, they were talking to each other about the challenges that they've got in business, just general, normal, day-to-day -day stuff. How do you hire people? Where's your office space? Who do you use for X, Y, Z? Um, so we thought, right, is there, is there something we can do for that, for those entrepreneurs? And we'd done these dinners. We thought, right, let's do, let's do, let's try and organize a dinner just for the entrepreneurs so they can talk about those everyday challenges. We didn't know whether it was going to work. We didn't know whether anyone was going to want this sort of thing. There was even, even in 2011, there was loads of networking events going on. And what we were going to say to people, well, we'll, was, we'll come to one with only 10 people and we'll have dinner and you'll have to talk about it problem and you'll have to help other people and by the way you'll have to pay for dinner as well and so we so we ran the first one in december 2011 uh we paid for it in a place in the west end invited people that we knew would challenge us um on this idea of getting a sort of a deliberately small loosely curated bunch of people together no investors no service providers nobody pitching and all that kind of stuff and said what do you think um and that was our challenge for that very first dinner and you know, we, like I say, we deliberately got people there that were going to challenge us. So some people said it was a daft idea. Some people said we couldn't possibly charge entrepreneurs because there were so many free things going on. Uh, other people said, um, you know, we should get sponsors to pay for it because they'd, pay, they'd pay loads of money to get access to that sort of group. Um, and then others said, yeah, yeah, do you know what? Yeah, I'd pay, you know, 20 quid for that, 30 quid for that. Um, so we took all that on board and, and thought about it and sort of the thing, you know, Certain things stuck in our gut that just felt right for what we wanted to do, and some of them is, you know, some of it was just a happy accident that, you know, we both had full-time jobs, so we didn't need to, we didn't really need to do it for the money. So getting in corporate sponsors just didn't feel right. You know, we didn't want to serve those corporate sponsors; we wanted to serve the entrepreneurs. So let's let's park the corporate sponsor thing. Let's not do that. But how are we going to pay for it? Um, well, we think everyone should contribute. Uh, so we set up a. Eventbrite in the January of the next year, found a venue, put a price on it, 
and invited a new group of people and said, look, we're doing this dinner. Um, we want you to come along, share a challenge. Everyone's going to do that. And you try and help the other people out. And by the way, you're going to, you know, you've got to and, and the, you know, split the cost. I love it. Um, and that's been the same for the last eight so years. So how many have you got now? Uh, so last night was the 105th in London. And um, in in the middle of 2012, we we thought, okay, what would you know what would scale look like? What can we do more? How can we do more yeah, of yeah. this? And we didn't want to do like 20 dinners a night with 20 people. You know, one a month in London was great. Um, it's only ever 10 people, yourself and nine others, and um, that format's never changed. You know, we both had day jobs, so it was fine just to run that, and people really liked it. But we thought, what can we do to do more of this? And um, that the people who'd been to dinners often they were they were traveling around the world or dealing with people all around the world so we thought well what this might work in other cities so you know we went went back to that network which was maybe 70 or 80 people at the time who'd been through dinners and said look we think this might work in other cities if you know someone in another city that might want to host it in this nine other style put us in touch and we'll we'll talk to them and see if they want to do it and then we thought it would be amazing if people crisscrossing the world and they could kind of hit the ground running in a new city because there was a nine others community yeah. there. Um, so we did. So we had the plan of going to, and this was in the summer of 2012. And Katie said, right, let's put it in 12 cities in the next 12 months. And we did that. It's now been in 47 or 48 cities all around the world. Oh my God, this is amazing. Uh, this is huge. Oh, I can't believe I've never heard of you guys. You're unbelievable. Well, so, you know, what's, what's the, the nine others? What does that mean? What's yourself and nine others go to dinner? Oh, it's always 10. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay, cool. I get it. I get it. Yeah. I, the name makes because sense. We, now. Well, we wanted to keep it deliberately small because we didn't yeah. want to get tempted into having 11, 12, 15, 20, 30 people yeah, at yeah, dinner yeah. because we thought actually and that that small number works better. Works. I love that. That's really cool. So, look, we're coming to the bit of the show now where I, I get a lot of questions fired in um, on the old DM on Twitter. Uh, keep sending them in, please, at Back Yourself Pod. Um, I am going to curate some of these questions and ask you. Some of them. Now, if you don't know the answer to them, that's fine. Okay, right. So, you run a syndicate. Yep. What the is the difference between a syndicate and a VC or just a regular angel? What What is the difference? Okay. Um, so, I don't have a fund. I don't have a pot of money to invest. What happens in the syndicate is I get to know startups mainly through nine others and they come to dinner and I try to help out and, yeah. and all that sort of stuff um, over, a, over a number of months or years. Um if they then go on to raise to what to want to raise funding round um if i personally want to put a little bit of my money in and my co-founder on the syndicate personally wants to put a bit of his money in then if that's okay with the startup company then um we agree to do a bit of diligence so we um do some really thorough diligence on the company and on the people and we show that diligence memo to our syndicate members and then we have a pitch night and Q&A and lots of discussion amongst ourselves. And then each syndicate member decides whether they want to invest or not. Okay, so, so but some I, do, some don't. So, but with a fund, what you're what you've got with a fund, a typical VC fund, is you've got a pot of investment money that you deploy into companies. Okay, fine. I don't. And the benefit to that, I suppose, is that there's no real cap on how much can be put in, I guess, because you know, these guys who are there in a syndicate, they probably have available number. And if you've got so you've got 65. Uh, 67. Yeah, you've got 67. Like if they're all putting in, you know, 
10, 20, 30K, it could be a lot of money. You yeah. know what I mean? It could end up being really great. Or it could be really small if you just yeah. need to raise 50 to all Well, in the beginning, obviously, when we started the syndicate, we had a small number of people. We had yeah. 10 members for our first deal. Yeah, yeah. And four of those invested with us. Um, you know, the next was a bit bigger. The next was a bit bigger. And, and as, you, as a company, who's my investor? Is it you? Uh, we do it through a nominee. So there is one entity on more technical, but there's, there's one entity on the cap table. So there's one shareholder. Yeah. And then each investing syndicate member has an agreement with that company. Okay, fine. I think the question I'm asking is, as a side of myself and I take investors, I like taking investors that give me something more, like uh-huh. a bit of a relationship with. Who's my relationship with? Uh, mainly me. Okay. And, you know, the whole thing with the DMG syndicate is we want people to be members of that syndicate if they want to contribute, learn and invest. That's okay. our three things. And what, I, what I've what i done and continue to do with the Nine Others Network is people join that, they come to dinner, they contribute, They you know, the, the dinner is kind of the kickoff to people using and, and making of that network what they will. What, I've, what I'm building now is a, is a um, angel investment syndicate, which is another network of people. And everybody in that network, um, as people are added, they want to contribute. So these are people who who are maybe in business or they've exited their business or they're working um, at a big company and they want to do some angel investing, but they also want to contribute to these companies. So we want people that are going to contribute. Sometimes that might be a quick phone call. Sometimes that might be um, you know a few emails back and forth. Sometimes it might be half a day with a whiteboard, yeah, depending sure. on what the challenge is that the that the portfolio company's got. So I kind of keep you know keep my ear to the ground with the portfolio company and then whatever challenges they've got you know i'll try and help um if i can't or if i know someone who's going to be better at helping i can pull in those syndicate members at the right time and it might be next week it might be next year it might be you know whenever so all of our people want to contribute Uh, we also want to learn from each other so one of the benefits of the syndicate i think is um i've got a great network of people and we can help each other become better investors we run it all through slack um so that so once there's an investment opportunity there we have a channel for each opportunity um and there's a lot of discussion goes on so we can learn from each other yeah no, i like that um and then like i say uh, when it comes to decision day each member makes their own decision about whether they want to invest or not and I then like i that. wrap it up and 67 is almost more well. powerful than 10 that you've won mm. VC. Okay, cool. All right, two more questions. Uh, your challenges to answer, we haven't got a lot of time. Your challenges to answer these in under one minute. Okay. Okay, I believe in you. All right. Um, great question. What makes a shit investor? Because everyone holds everyone like angels on a pedestal. They're like yeah. these amazing people that have been successful enough to have some money. They can invest in companies. But like, and so when someone comes to you and they say, like, I'm going to give you some money, mm-hmm. you're like, whoa, I'll take that money. But you shouldn't always do that. Yeah, there are shit investors but what yeah. makes someone a shit investor um well a good investor invests money and contributes and is helpful right that's what companies really really want um i think an underrated investor is really dumb money so they just give you the money and they go away i think the bit in the middle where you've got an investor who invests some money and then meddles and doesn't really help but thinks they are that's not that's a bad investor. Yeah. Um, so I guess it's a bit of self-awareness from the investor as to whether they can contribute and how much they can really contribute. Or if they can't and they're just not going to and they've got other things going on, then you know, invest some money, fine, and then get out of the way. I agree. Uh, my advice on that is always anyone who, any investor who tells you how to do your job. Yep. Yep. 
if they give you advice and help you to get to a conclusion, that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. but if someone is telling you how to do it, it's like that's why you gave me this money in the first place. Yeah, and if you don't and trust the, me to do it, I mean, every investor guy. thinks they can help a bit, and some yeah. can, and some help more than others. But really, it, you know, it's up to the founders to be heavily incentivized and motivated, correct, to to do the work. Um, okay, so you know, I I try and contribute where I can, but phew, crikey, you know, the founders are doing. 99.9%. Of course they are. Of course they are. <laughs> right. So I ask these two questions to everyone who ever comes on the show, particularly people who are like you, completely embedded in that founder world. And I love it. The first question I'm going to ask you is, what is the biggest mistake that you see founders make consist- like, quite across the board? And secondly, what is your one piece of quotable advice that you would give to every founder? Okay. It's really hard, but build your network before you really need it. Wow. Love that. 100% agree as well. I think of I think of the whole networking thing as a bit like spinning plates. You kind of got to interact with people at various times, and sometimes yeah. you have to spin this one up. Sometimes you can spin that one and leave it for a while. Um, I get, I mean, I get hit up obviously on on LinkedIn and email and all that sort of stuff about investment. And I mean, I love it. Cold emails are done well are really underrated, and people should do that better. But they should definitely do it. And but it, it's always a bit too late. You know, if I meet someone for the first time right now and they are raising a funding round, I won't invest because I've got another deal. On, I've got a deal on the go at the minute. Yeah, I yeah. think I know who my next two or three are going to be. Yeah. And we're only going to invest in maybe four or five this year. However, let's get to know each other. And if you execute well and you you say what you you do, what you say you would or, or you don't and you understand why not and you're forever learning and growing and all that sort of stuff. Well, it might be another year or 18 months down the road. And we get to know each other well, and maybe that's when we can invest. So build that network before you need it. I love that. Um, Matt, I've loved having you on the show. I love your story. I love the takeaways for me uh, personally are don't let someone else tell you the order you have to do things. You know, experiment, see what works for you. If you have an itch, go and scratch it. I talk about it all the time. Networking is a superpower. You've got to work it. I love that you've created this this network, which is substantiating your belief that it's the power because that creates your deal flow and so forth. I also take away from this that there's one really important lesson about investment and so forth is get to know your investors, spend time with them, get to understand them because it's a two-way street. Yeah, and I've taken that from it. And finally, um, farmers are the hardest working people on the planet, right? (laughs) That's it. All right, Lex, be great. I hope you've enjoyed yourself. Thank you very much.